Welcome to Wildlife Outdoors with your host, Russell and Jose. If you have a passion for conservation of the outdoors, or you're enjoying a calming hike in the mountains, an exhilarating kayak trip on the river, feeling a fish on the end of your line, cooking on an open flame in a primitive campsite, or stalking big game, just waiting for the perfect shot, you're in the right place. So put on your boots and polarized sunglasses and come along for the ride. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. It's uh, Jose and Russell here with Wildlife Outdoors. And today we are actually joined by a first, a guest on the show that was listening to us before we actually knew him. So uh, here it is. His name is Fred Truix. You want to tell us a little about yourself, Fred? Uh, Hey, I'm Fred Truix. I'm from upstate New York, uh, from the Syracuse area. Uh, Big bass angler. Um, big buck hunter, but not a big buck shooter. Um, <laughs> um, I live, live up in all the clear water of the North, um, just South of like Lake Ontario, kind of in that central New York area, um, where we celebrate all four seasons and, uh, we have hot summers, really cold, snowy winters. So we kind of get it all and kind of, uh, in the state, Kind of, kind of have everything here. We have, we have mountains, we have valleys, we have really great water, we have muddy water, and kind of everything in between. It's a good That's little awesome. spot. Just uh, stay away from the politics here, <laughs> <laughs> right? You can say that about anywhere nowadays, though. For real. So I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about muddy waters up north. So, so tell us a little about that. Is that like, is it runoff or? Um, well, like your mountain runoff, that's crystal clear. That's probably cleaner than the the water you're drinking in your water bottle right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but we have, we have like your basic lowland rivers and stuff that are flowing in and out of ponds and out of swamps and stuff. And then obviously your rain just coming down, you know, like ditch lines and whatnot. So muddy water. No, we're not, you know, in Arkansas and Georgia and fishing in straight mud, but we have, we have river visibility of, you know, two, three feet sometimes. Nice. I see. But primarily, you know, fishing in the Finger Lakes for the most part, it's usually pretty gin clear. Lake Ontario is pretty clear. St. Lawrence is pretty clear. But following, you know, storm patterns and rains and stuff, obviously it'll muddy up. I see. That makes sense. So I've never been to any of the Great Lakes up there. So the only thing that I really think about when I think about Great Lakes is um, cold, windy, and sturgeon. Um, <laughs> 100% right. <laughs> so what else? I, I know that you've sent me some pictures of some like Lake Browns that you've caught and stuff like that. What else do you catch on the lakes? So, um, a lot of people up here chase, uh, musky, like muscalinch. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty common. Northern pike, obviously. Um, smallmouth. If you're into bass, this is like the smallmouth capital, if you will, other than like, you know, St. Clair and whatnot, but your, your finger or your, uh, Great Lakes region. Um, and just a lot of it is so it's, it's so different than anything else. Like you watch, like, um, the furthest South that I've ever fished was like Chesapeake Bay Mm -hmm. in Maryland. Um, we fished the Northern end of that. Um, and even that working with tidal water was so different than like what I'm used to. Cause we'll go out in a lake and I'll drop shot onto smallmouth in 45, 60 feet of water sometimes. Really? And then tomorrow, tomorrow morning they're pulled up into 15 feet. That's, that's they're crazy. so they move around and they're, they're incredible. Um, like Oneida Lake. Um, sometimes you'll see like the Bassmaster Elite series will go there. Those boys will find them on a shoal mm-hmm. and 
side note, if you ever get the chance to look at Oneida Lake at like um like the Navionics map of that, there's so many shoals in that lake. It's it's incredible. Um but you'll you'll watch the the guys and if you can catch a like a picture of their graph or something, you'll see that they're they're throwing drop shots or Carolina rigs or cranking in 15, 16 feet of water. And then it'll flip to the next person and he's drop shotting on 45 feet of water trying to catch the same similar smallmouth and they'll, they'll travel so much and they, they tournament day. It seems like they weren't where they were during practice. Really? <laughs> uh, they're, they move around so much up here. That's crazy. So we have smallmouth here in Arkansas and they're typically in the river systems and, um, you know, they, they'll act pretty much like a trout. So they'll stay close to the ripple. And, uh, you know, if, if you find uh, a little pocket, little eddy on the outside of a ripple, they're typically going to be on the ripple side of that. Right. And they're always there. And that's just where they are. Sometimes they'll go deeper, you know, we'll have some deeper pockets and, you know, they'll hole up in there, but majority of the times they're just close to the ripple. And so it's just different to think about how smallmouth will travel so much on lakes. But then again, I don't think I've ever caught a smallmouth, smallmouth on a lake before. So, um, it's always been river smallmouth. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say there's, there's a lot, there's, I don't want to say a lot of difference. Obviously it's the same fish, but mm-hmm. they're sitting in a, in a lake that's not, there's no current. So they're, they're holding to cover like grasses, they're holding to rocks they're holding to hard bottom. And when the water is exceptionally clear, that's when you see those anglers have like the floggers Uh where they're hanging off the side of their boat, looking down what looks like a road cone. Mm -hmm. Um, that's our water is so clear instead of a fish finder, you can physically place that it's either glass or plastic shield on it. And you can look down and see 30, 40 feet underneath you and see little black dots swimming around this rock. And hmm, there's my small mouth. (laughs) That's freaking crazy. So yeah, if you, if you watch a lot of the elite, you'll see they'll have, it looks sometimes they'll, they'll tape it. They'll tape them up with like uh like black electrical tape to try to hide it. Mm-hmm. Or they'll, uh, they'll be like fluorescent orange. They look like highway cones and they just hold them down and they're looking in the water and you'll see they'll have them. They'll be looking down and they'll have a drop shot rod in their other hand and they'll watch it, watch the bite and set the hook. Throw That's the freaking the crazy. Reel it in. That's I don't think I've ever seen that before. Uh, That's something that I would like yeah, to try, though. It's, a, it's incredible. <laughs> it's, it's such a weird way, such a weird way to fish. And now, now, obviously, with your electronics are so far advanced on bass boats now, you have, like, forward-facing sonar, live sonar, 360 imaging, mega yeah. imaging, side scan. It's pretty hard to hide in those waters now. Sure. Right, right. I was watching uh, John B's latest video that he made up there. Uh, I, th- I want to say it was Maine or no, it was in, he went to, um, he was in Canada. I don't remember what, oh, his, what state I saw he was his, the, the sturgeon. Yeah. Yeah. He caught yeah, the sturgeon saw, and stuff, the, but the when picture. he was catching the freaking bass, the smallmouth bass out there, he was catching some chunky smallmouth bass mm-hmm. and he found this yeah. one spot by this bridge that they were just, I mean, piled in there. So what's a big smallmouth bass for your region? Um, I would sit like St. Lawrence River, um, six and a half, seven pounds. No shit. Um, <laughs> I'd probably have a heart attack if I caught a six, six or seven. Yeah, pounds I probably mouth. would too. I think my my PB smallmouth's got to be around five pounds from the St. Lawrence. That's a stud that's fish, nuts. though. <clears throat> they're they're footballs. They're they're legitimate footballs. That's awesome. Um, if you. Uh, I know I keep keep bringing up the elites, but if you watch their St. Lawrence, they just broke uh, the single day record of smallmouth. And it was like 30. Don't quote me. I think it was 37 pounds. Wow. Holy five. That's freaking crazy. What's been your best day? Yeah, so that's my best day. Probably 24, maybe. That's pretty dang solid, though, man. That, that's really sitting, good. Sitting or averaging around the five pound mark. 
That's um, that nuts. was that was a team event. I've never I've never fished it solo. I so see. It was a team event. We, so you, so you do you do tourneys? Yeah, yeah, I do a lot of tourneys. Nice man. How how'd you get into that? Um, so it's actually funny. My um my development into fishing is I don't want to say it's new anymore, but it really I got deep into it in like 2017 2018 um my uncle took me fishing we had a you know a bomb day out on the waters you know you catch one of those days you just catch everything you catch every fish in the lake we're catching small mouth large mouth we're catching northern pikes pickerel perch anything every cast is a fish kind of thing i'm like wow this is pretty fun so um we fished a whole bunch that summer and it, and it just, to me, it just like clicked. Um, I was in the books on YouTube, you know, watching the Guggen squad before they were the Guggen squad, Mm -hmm. trying to learn everything that there is to learn about bass fishing. That was my target was, was bass fishing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm eating it up and I'm talking to people and I'm making friends. And, and then all of a sudden, like, I'm discovering companies and you're chatting with people from the companies that are trying to sell you products. And this is the best thing. And this is a game changer. And this is the, you know, going to destroy the way that you've ever caught a fish kind of thing. And you go to Gander Mountain or Dick Sporting Goods and you're buying all these hype lures just to say you own them. And I just got so fully involved with it that, um, my one buddy, Chris, uh, he approached me and he goes, we ever thought about fishing like derbies on the river? I'm like, no way, dude. There's no way I can catch, you know, five bass on a time limit. And, uh, I got talking with my uncle and we kind of decided to go do one and we showed up and, you know, got your ass kicked and eh, well, but it was fun. You mm-hmm. know, it was fun. We lost, but it was fun. And, uh, we did that a few times and then I got talking to him. I'm like, well, these pros, if you watch TV, if you, if you, you know, don't compare yourself to a pro, but if you're watching it, you're like, well, they have a couple days of practice. They can go out. They, they pre-fish. You find the fish before you go. Mm-hmm. So um, it was on the Oswego River up here was our kind of our big tournament, if you will. And uh, we found this little little cut. It's a creek that flows into the river. It's called Ox Creek. And uh, we had gone out two nights before. And uh, where that river or where the creek flows into the river was is this huge grass mat. It's like an acre grass mat. And uh, it's all just slop and junk. But it's not, it doesn't touch bottom. It just sits there and kind of floats. Mm-hmm. There, There is seaweed there that kind of holds it in yeah. place. And we're throwing frogs on it. We're punching it and whatnot. And we're hammering largemouth. So um, we're like, okay. So we tried it again the next day. Now it's like Wednesday night. We try it. They're still there. So we're like, well we have a good chance that they're probably still there and hopefully we didn't sore lip them. So we show up Thursday and absolutely we caught like around 20 pounds and like second place was like 11. Wow, dude. And we show up with like a bag of bass and this is before we had, we didn't have way bags. We didn't have anything. We're like, we're reaching in the live well and just carrying (laughs) two large bass at a time to their, to their way station. Like those poor fish. And, uh, so like we crushed it and we're looking at each other like this is this is happening like we just did that together like we just caught like it was like a 5.71 lunker and it was like like it was it was a, it was a day it was a day to be on the water and that's um, freaking awesome it was it was super cool uh to do that and then since then um 
that same buddy Chris that told me to try tournaments, he invited me to try one out of uh, Fairhaven. Uh, it's called Little Sodas Bay. It's just off of Lake Ontario. He and I went and fished it, and I don't, I don't think we did very well, but it was like my first glimpse at sitting in the middle of a lake. We went into Lake Ontario, throwing this little stupid worm with a weight <laughs> underneath it into 40 feet of water. And somehow Chris is catching fish and I cannot figure it out. <laughs> so he's using like six pound test with a little tiny drop shot, like a number one hook with a six inch robo worm on it and a, like a half ounce drop shot weight. Uh-huh. I'm throwing 65 pound braid with a three <laughs> hook with a Senko on it and not catching a damn thing. <laughs> and I'm so confused. I'm like, I don't get it, but I own one rod. This is what I got. I had one rod for worms and one rod for a frog mm-hmm. and you're not throwing a frog in 40 feet of water. Right. So, um, but it was a learning experience. And then all of a sudden it was that day where I realized, you know what I need? 47 rods. <laughs> That'll solve my problem. <laughs> I just I added another 25 rods. <laughs> so um, that was where the collection started growing. And then from there, um, I remember... I had just a little cheap Plano, like 3,600 tackle box. That was where all my stuff was. I had like a bag of Senkos that I would carry in my pocket and then a couple random hooks and a couple random, mostly fire tiger painted lures. <laughs> and, uh, because they're bright and they look cool. They right. sell, you know, they catch the angler, not the fish. Exactly. Um, so Chris and I took off and at the time he just bought like a pretty new nitro bass boat. It was a, it was a Z18. I had never it never clicked up in the thick skull of mine of how fast these boats are. And we take off on the river. It's like six 30 in the morning. The The river is perfect glass. We take off and I'm looking over. He's got like a Lawrence fish finder, 20 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour, 40, 50. We're reaching 60. The next thing I know is I'm like looking up and there's just glitter all around me because my tackle box just left the under part of my foot and just exploded. <laughs> um, my little plano like like oh. wind caught it and it up, it hits something and boom. Oh, no. <laughs> like all this crap everywhere. I had a pocket knife in there and I look at Chris and he's like, what's your plan? You're not going to get it. I'm like, oh, so I have to fish out of his stuff that day. Um, that was on the same river where we had won. I see. And it was kind of after then where I'm like, how do I, how do I get into this? But like kind of optimize myself. Mm-hmm. How do I like, what is bass fishing? And he says, well, if you're really considering this, you should join this club. It's called the good old boys. It's um, a New York bass nation affiliate and uh, it's an actual club. What you do every week is I would go as a non-boater. You bring all your own lures. You're paired with a boater. Mm -hmm. Um, You help them out with anything they need on the boat. They try to put you on fish. Obviously, they want to put themselves on fish. So, Um, But you're just a co-boater. You're helping them not fish. You know, any emergencies. Like, I've helped guys, you know, pull hooks out of their hand and, you know, first aid on the boat and stuff. And, you know, you help them launch their boat with the truck, back up a trailer, do that. And that's kind of how I got into that. Um, and then I just took it with, pr- honestly for, for the level that I was fishing for, you know, if I would win a tournament, it's paying me like $40. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Like it would pay my gas to get to the boat launch and my gas that I would try to pitch to the, the boater for using his boat. Um, and maybe I'll have enough to swing into like McDonald's on the way home kind of thing. So you're not making money doing that really. Um, which I didn't care. I was there for fun. I w- I've never, never really done this to try to break a profit. Anything that I make is paying off the debt that I've incurred basically. Right. Um, so I, uh, I took it too seriously. Um, and I, I still take it very seriously, but I went out with the good old boys and, uh, kind of, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound, I guess I don't know how to word it, but essentially did very well. I, I did pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, went out my very first tournament. Um, I lost a fish that I would have won the whole tournament with and might have had longer. It was on Cayuga Lake. Um, and then the very first, that was just a paper tournament. So up north, our season doesn't open until the third Saturday in June. I see. Um, so anything before then is usually like their spawn time. So we can do what, what they call paper tournaments. Um, you catch a bass, you can take it out of the water and you and your boater, because you're against each other, the other person weighs it. You take a weight on a scale and then you release it. So it's catch and release. I see. Um, I probably had on, it was like a, a pre-spawn, probably five or six pound largemouth. It was massive Northern Cuga Lake and, and it shook the hook as we were trying to oh, net it. Man. And that, that would have been, that would have been a game changer right there. So I think I got like second or third place with like seven pounds or something on the non-boater side. Yeah. And then, um, our very first points tournament was the Oswego river, which is my home water. Um, I went out there, I caught like 18 and a half pounds and I won the whole event as a non-boater. Nice. Um, in the same, in the same swing, while I'm doing this good old boys, I'm also into New York kayak bass fishing. Mm-hmm. So I'm out on a kayak a lot as well, uh, fishing a lot of the smaller finger lakes and smaller, you know, tributaries and bodies of water and such. So I'm on the water like six days a week. My wife loved every second of it. <laughs> um, but I was out a lot. Um, and I was a full at the at the time I was a full time mechanic. That was when I, I sent you that picture of that northern pike I caught. I looked like crap. So I would like get out of work and and where I worked was along the Seneca River. And I would just get out of work and just go fish there. And I would be like, well, you know, John B showed this is how you flip a creature bait. And mm-hmm. Alex Parrick says this is how you're supposed to throw a crankbait. And I'd go out and I would try it. And I would bring one lure with me. And this is how you flip a jig. This is how you do this. And I would do that. That'd be the only thing that I'd bring. And uh, I progressively develop those skills and then when to use them, how to use them, where to use them. And that was, I was able to target fish. So that first season using all of this, like sponge of knowledge that I just got obsessed with learning everything I could about bass. I ended up winning, um, angler of the year on the co-boater side. I got invited to the CTC, which is the club team championship, which is six, your, your highest six in points for the season. You go to compete with your team against the whole state of New York for all the other bass clubs. That's awesome. That was on the St. Lawrence. I think we got like third or fourth place. Um, so that was an experience. And then I went down, uh, that same year, me and Chris went down to the Chesapeake and fished to FLW BFL. Um, I don't know where I placed. I don't even think I placed down there like 60 something, but that's what it was. 
so bass is kind of my game which is you know that's that's my my forte i would say and i so. think i've been talking to you on the side about fly fishing and i, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of my break against bass but like i show up to a creek and i'm like I don't know. There's a tree laying there. I bet there's something pulled up underneath that. I'm like, let me go grab my bait caster out of the truck. Right, right. <laughs> That's freaking awesome, though. So you said that uh, you know the New York KBF is. So is that just a chapter of the larger KBF, or is it a completely yeah, different yep. thing? Yep. So um, in 2018, I fished with NYKBF. That's mm-hmm. uh, it's an affiliate with the KBF. It's similar to how Bass Nation is I see. with Good Old Boys. Uh, same same sort of deal. So they at the time were taking the top three. Don't quote me on that, but I believe it was the top three. You could go to the KBF um, National Championship, and that was on um, Kentucky Lake mm-hmm. in Tennessee. Um which I qualified for, but at my time and my age, I, I didn't have money to travel yeah. um, to go fish it. I did qualify for it. I was, I was a qualifier for it, but I wasn't able to, to make it, which I believe it was like the top 200 in the country were able to go to that. I think That's it's bigger awesome. now. Um, so that was, that was cool. Um, but just like that, that 2017 through like 2020 kind of COVID, it was kind of mm-hmm. COVID was like, that 17 to 2020, those three years, I was like trying to figure out how to be the next Kevin Van Dam, basically. Hey, there ain't nothing and wrong with that. It seems it was, like you're was, pretty successful was, too, especially for being self-taught. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't, uh, like I give a lot of credit to my uncle and, and, you know, my good friend, Chris, um, on showing me more or less how to slow down. Yeah. Um, because I would I would throw a jig for three casts and then nope that's not working and then I throw a crankbait for three casts oh, that's not working oh let me try spinnerbait oh that's not working let me try sanko and they're like dude slow it down like make sure they really don't want it because sometimes you know some warnings they're finicky and now I come with more of a, a methodical approach to it mm-hmm. um, try to be more sneaky or if you got to be aggressive be aggressive kind of depends on the lay of the water on the day and you got to figure out what they're doing. If right. they want an aggressive bite, you give them the aggressive bite. If they need to slow it down and you got to force feed it to them, well, sounds like you're going to have a sore wrist in the morning from just standing there all day. <laughs> right. So how does that uh, transpose over into fly fishing? So you said you're starting to get into fly fishing. How long have you been trying that for? So, okay. Um, roughly the same time of all of this happening, we had a Gander Mountain up mm-hmm. here in another town nearby. Um, and they were doing a going out of business where they were, I think at the time we thought they were closing, but it was just converting into Gander Outdoors, which is now Gander RV. When they were doing the flip from Gander Mountain to Gander Outdoors, they had like this huge clearance sale. And I'm like, well, I hunt, I fish, it's worth my time. Let me, let me drive there. It's probably about a half hour from my house. So I go there with the wife and I'm looking at stuff and I'm like, Eh, I don't really need any of this. You know, I grabbed some bass lures and kind of restock on some of that stuff, but kind of in the corner is this, um, it's like a fly rod kit and it's, um, it was a Reddington, uh, cross crosswater. Mm-hmm. I believe that's what it was. And, uh, it's got like the, the topo or topo rod. Um, and it was just a whole kit and I'm like, Hmm. And I'm looking at it and it's hanging on a tag and it said it was like at the time it was like 250 300 bucks something like that and it had the you know a sticker on it and the sticker means x amount of percent well the sticker was like pink and that meant like 
85 or 80 percent off wow. and i'm yeah. like hmm well i'm like i've never never even tried to fly i would watch videos on youtube or on tv and you see these guys whipping flies around i'm like that is freaking artists doing their craft <laughs> i'm like I can hardly write my name without a letter backwards. <laughs> like, like, man, I, I get confused on which way to go to my bathroom sometimes. I'm no way am I going to fly, like, fly fishing. So, eh, what the hell? It was like 80 bucks or something. I bought it. And I'm like, um, well, I don't know what any of this stuff is. I don't know what the hell to do with it. Right. And there's like this little like fold of paper in there. And it's like, I just pick it up and go from like 10 o'clock to two o'clock and then, and then let out a little bit of line. It's, it's easy. Anyone can do it. And, um, after just doing what I thought I had to do fail. (laughs) (laughs) And then I, I hopped on YouTube and, and for a short while there I did with that, what I was doing with bass and getting a little bit obsessed with it. Yeah. And, uh, I would just practice in my backyard or in the side yard or whatever. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, my, you know, five foot cast where my leader isn't even all the way out of my rod yet. And now I'm actually casting 30, 40 feet. And okay, now I need to figure out how to be more accurate. Now I need to figure out what to do when there's a tree behind me or a bush behind me and like you know, roll casts and stuff. And, uh, I don't remember why. And I don't really think there was a reason. I think I just fell back obsessed with bass fishing that I put the rod up mm-hmm. and it just kind of sat in my garage for a couple of years and didn't touch it. And, um, recently I had been thinking, I'm like, man, I really should like fly fish. I'm like, I really should go out. So I don't know how world or regionally famous it is, but the salmon river in New York, Mm -hmm. that's uh, about a half hour North of me. And I know people come up from New York city to fish it. It's a huge fishery. Um, very popular steelhead, salmon, coho, you know, big, big stuff in there. Um, and I'm like, man, maybe I'll try to fish that. I did it once when I was like 15 or 16 with a friend with like just a little spinning rod, like nothing important. He's like, let's go. And I'm like, maybe I'll try to actually fish that. I'm like, well, I want to fly fish it because I'm stupid. I can't just use what I have. I have to try something new. (laughs) I already don't know what the hell I'm doing. So let's add more difficulty. So I go in the backyard with the fly rod, knock the dust off it. I'm like, okay, well I didn't really forget how to cast it. And then, uh, the wife and I are talking, we go up to the Adirondacks and I'm like the Adirondacks. Okay. Uh, so that's like the Osable river. And I'm like, I'm just going to just tuck this in the car. We're just going to like sneak that up there. And if I get a minute, I'm going to maybe sneak out. Um, so I was able to do a little bit of fishing up there and this would have been, well, you, you saw the picture that I posted on Facebook asking where that was. Yeah. That, uh, that was that trip. And I'm like, this is, this is next level stuff. Like with bass fishing, I can go out and I can, you know, release my competitive nature mm-hmm. and and go out and compete. And I'm like, but fly fishing, like you're you're knee deep into a swift stream with fish around you, and and nothing but you and nature and maybe a deer or bear. Like mm-hmm. that's just serenity. That's just it's like every direction you look when you're casting, you just like look around and it's just a postcard every direction you're looking. And right. I'm like, I can get into this. This is peaceful. 
this is not, you know, 2 a.m. the night before a bass tournament figuring out what lure I want to tie on. <laughs> exactly. It's definitely peaceful. And it, it's kind of one of those places to where everything else is just so quiet. You just hear the birds and you yeah. just hear the water running and it's just absolutely peaceful. Absolutely. That's an interesting like dichotomy. It's like you can you have one for your competitive side and one for like you just want to be tranquil and just kind of relax. And that's really interesting description because I mean, I, before I got into fly fishing, I was more like bass and well, just conventional gear in general, I fish for whatever, but mainly bass and then whatever was on the coast. Um, redfish mainly was my favorite and then some trout. But like when I was listening to you talk about, you know, that I guess contrast for you, I got to thinking and I think I am a bit more relaxed when I'm fly fishing than when I'm conventional gear fishing for whatever reason uh, but I, I never really paid much attention to it but i think but i think i also kind of get a little competitive with myself when it comes to the fly fishing thing because i notice that i can get frustrated like when i'm like like snagging everything catching grass on my back cast or oh, right. um if the wind's like whipping my fly around I me mean, it's just like when i'm trying to make a decent cast like it, it can get really frustrating i think i do get like mad at myself because like i know i can be better or whatever so it goes from being like a really nice evening out in the water to like god i hate this why do i want to do this i'm gonna chunk this freaking rod in the water <laughs> <laughs> and then i think it's even worse whenever i go to like a new body of water and like i'm like with russell for example we went on the to uh, to uh, the white river we went on a, on a guided trip Dude, I was like really quiet and I was focused because I was like dead set on trying to catch my first brown of the trip. And I was like laser focused. And I just, and I mean, and it was, it's, and it was a fun trip. And no one had like this pressure except for myself. I felt pressure that I, I needed to make this happen because I didn't know when I was going to be able to go up there again and do it. So, like, I felt like I needed to get it done for myself. And so it wasn't until I netted that my, that one and only brown that I hooked that day that I felt like, all right, got it done. Now let's have some fun. And I didn't, and I'm like, my cast went to shit after that, but I didn't even care anymore. Like, I, was just like, <laughs> I was just like, I was just living good, man. So it's, it's kind of funny. Like when you, when you put it like that, I kind of go back and forth, but I think for the most part, fly fishing is like, it, it, it I think that's what I do when I, when I just want to like relax. Cause a lot of times it's not even about the fishing. It's just like getting out, you know, whatever. But I think that can be said, you know, in general, but for me, right, I think that's where it's right. at. But, uh, I, I think a lot of it, um, is the mental game with, with fishing. Um, if you know where the fish are and you know what they're eating, but they're not doing it. I think a lot of the issue is that it's in your head mm -hmm. because I mean, I've been looking at a graph on a bass boat, seeing a fish swimming around a log on like pan optics and the guy at the front of the boat is throwing a blue and black jig and you throw it at that fish and it bites and there's two more fish swimming there and you throw blue and black and it just won't bite. And I, I think a lot of the stress, the issue is your mental, like mm. getting in your own head on why won't this bite instead of trying to change something up. I, at least myself, I'll yeah. sit there and I'll be like, why? So I think that's going to be 
at least right now, the relaxation of fly fishing because I'm total novice and I don't know what the hell to throw. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know if I'm supposed to be throwing this or not. Um, but the guy at the, the fly shop said too, so I'm just going to throw it and see what happens. And if they don't bite, there, there ain't no fish in this river. <laughs> I, I think so. Like, so when you bass fish, do you throw swim baits at all? Yeah, I'd throw some. Yeah. I think they're, they're, I mean, I mean, the fish are going to do whatever, like they're fish. They're like, you know them well, obviously, and mm-hmm. you know, well enough to do well in tournaments and place. It's like the same thing, just different equipment, more or less. A technique's going to be different. Um, with conventional fishing, like it's probably easier for you to get deeper, faster than with a fly rod. So, like fishing those deep spots are going to be more right, difficult. Right. But I, I think you would be impressed or surprised at how well your knowledge will translate to fly fishing once you get more comfortable with it. There's a. Yeah. Uh, do you have you ever listened to the podcast? Um, so Joe Cermelli, it is cut and retie. Cut and retie. Yes, thank you. He did. Well, I know it. Oh, dude, it's a fantastic podcast. He's he's awesome. But um, he had a guest on. I believe I, I can't remember. I believe his name was Brian Wiseman. He's a fly fisherman. Uh, he he's like really big in streamers and stuff. They were talking about streamer fishing. He's like, dude, if you want to get really good at streamer fishing for one season, don't even touch a fly rod. Use conventional gear. Throw swim baits. And it will make you a better streamer fisherman. And oh, I was like, that's that, yeah. And I was like, dude, that's really interesting. Cause like streamer fishermen, I mean, uh, uh, conventional gears throwing swim baits, like they know what's up. Like you can catch some right. monsters with those oh, yeah. throwing swim baits and everything. But, and I think the techniques, um, where are you going to throw that swim bait? What time of year, the size, all that stuff will translate over to, to fly fishing really well but you know it's right, just, right, just different yeah. so uh, so i was like and that was coming from a fly fishing dude and he was and i think he at that point in time was also transitioning more into swim bait fishing and he's like yeah man like i fully believe if you want to become a better streamer fisherman like throw like don't even touch it just pick up a uh, swim bait pick up a bait cast rod and get after it like you'll become better by the time you touch that rod again i was like dude that's pretty yeah, sick well, you're you're using the swim bait to replicate what a fish is underwater. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're doing the same thing with a streamer. So it's, yeah, yeah it makes sense. That makes very good sense. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought about that. I was like, damn, that's pretty cool. Do you use streamer fish much? Do I? Yes. Um, no, I would say probably not. Um, so have you ever thrown any type of streamer or any, or do you know what a streamer is on the fly rod? I, I know what a streamer is. I don't think I've ever thrown one. Okay, so if you use your knowledge of bass fishing that for your conventional stuff, it's basically the same thing as that. Um, but instead of using a crankbait, a rattle trap, um, a spook, or anything like that, it's similar in terms of the concept of how you would fish it, but um, there's numerous kinds. So they can go from very basic, like a fly they call a woolly bugger, mm-hmm. which is yep. basically just, you know, chenille and sometimes a beadhead and, you know, some marabou. Um, but you swim it the same way. So you could strip, 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 pause, strip, strip, pause, right, 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 stuff like that. And then it gets more to the fancy side where you can get like game changers and stuff like that and articulated flies, which have multiple hooks and like 12, 13 inch freaking big, (laughs) like multi shank behemoths. It's crazy. Exactly. And if you're, you know, up in your region, you know, there's a lot of people. Have you ever heard of um, fly versus jerk tournaments over in Sweden? No. So it is interesting. So it's all on Northern Pike. And they're catching 40, 50 kilogram pike over there. Of course, it's wow. metric. So, but 
uh, there's a team called Team Vision that has been there. I think they're on season 14 now. And Team Vision um, has a guy named Nicholas Bauer on there, and he's all fly. All he does is fly fish, and he's won that entire tournament going against conventional guys before. Wow! And he'll wow, tie these huge, like 13 inch freaking streamers with, you know little swirly tails on the end of them. Um, but yeah, you can like, I tie up some flies that are made out of just faux fur. And it was funny when you said fire tiger colored painted stuff earlier, (laughs) I'll tie like fire tiger flies. And that's what I catch my pickerel on here. And they're probably about six inches long. Um, but you, you strip them just like you would fish with conventional gear. Um, but there's, I mean, the, the names get pretty wild. There's like circus peanuts and sex dungeons and all sorts of stuff that (laughs) that are just massive articulated flies, um, that have movements similar to like Mm -hmm. something you'd find with the segmented crank or something like that. Right. Um, So you can get into stuff like that and just use your knowledge and the same techniques. And, uh, I'm pretty sure you'd probably be more successful getting bass on them than I would. (laughs) Dude. Yeah. I bet you can wreck shop at some of those local creeks and things. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we're not trying to sell you on the fly fishing thing, whatever it is, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm already sold. I mean, I'm, I'm just knowledge right now. <laughs> no, but, but like, even for myself, like I, you know, I'm self-taught. I didn't have anybody like, I didn't go to like, I should take casting lessons. I probably have a lot of bad habits, but like, I'm all self-taught YouTube and stuff and just trial and error before YouTube was like a thing. Um, but a lot of the convention, like a lot of stuff I learned conventional fishing, I think really helped me make the transition into being like a, a more successful fly fisherman. Cause the water is the same. The, the fish right. are the same. All that's the same. It's just like, you know, just how I, I guess approach it is going to be different and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, I, I think it really, really helped me a lot. And, um, and one thing that like, and yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, Russell knows like I'm, I'm a, I'm a streamer, dude. Like I hate, I cannot stand nymphing. Um, not that there's anything against it. <laughs> it's just boring to me, you mm-hmm. know? And like, uh, and a good topwater bite. I mean, you do, you would know a topwater bite is just stellar. It's like hard to compare to anything. I mean, I love a good topwater bite with bass. That's exciting. Like a yeah, like flat, flat calm morning and all of a sudden just something explodes on your lure. Oh, my goodness. Yep. yep. That's, that's have you ever had morning. a topwater bite on the fly before? Uh, I have. I have. Um, so I bought, I got love this it. like little, I don't even know what brand kit. And it was just like a variety of flies and they had little tiny poppers. Uh-huh. And uh, oh, we have a family yeah. pond that's like overstocked with stuff. And I, I it was like first cast and I just cast out. I'm holding a fly as if it's a jerk bait rod mm-hmm. and I'm probably not doing it right. But I was like, snap, snap. And it went, bloop, bloop, boom. One just crushed it. And I'm like, oh, sick. Dude, that's so <laughs> that's sick, awesome. <laughs> I'd say probably my most memorable topwater bite. I was throwing a articulated popper that was probably like six or seven inches long. And it has a uh, two watt, and a one-aught hook on it and mm. there's some segments in between and uh, it's tied very similar to like a game changer but it has a big double barrel pop lo- popper on the front thing is freaking massive and i threw it out in the ripple on the washita river one time and a freaking smallmouth just nailed it top water <laughs> full body out of the water i was just like ah Dude, i ended so up losing funny. that fish i didn't land it but uh it was a good size i'd say probably a 20 inch plus smallmouth and uh so it sucked not landing that one but just <laughs> seeing it it was just freaking insane Oh man, we always remember the ones that got away, dude. Oh, yeah, the sure. heartbreakers. I, I still like my biggest smallmouth. I only caught two in my life. Russell was there for both of them. They're like, I don't know, ten inches. That might be even be generous, but 
Um, dude, I just uh, there's such such pretty fish, dude. I want to yeah. catch more, man. They're the tiger striping is beautiful. Yeah, they're gorgeous. It is gorgeous. I fish. think the biggest smallmouth I've caught is 17 inches. Um, obviously, you know, we're typically on kayaks, so we don't weigh them and, uh, we've never done tournaments. So that's not something that I've ever right, done, right. uh, but I have a, a bum board and a catch board and I'll, I'll measure them out and let them go. Um, I've done a quite a few kayak tournaments and, um, all the kayak tournaments we've done have always been length in at the end. So yeah, um, yeah that's, I wouldn't that's know, all of ours I wouldn't know what they'd, what they'd weigh, but, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, I haven't caught a big one yet and they're in the river systems here. There's, you know, plenty of them. I have a buddy named Evan that, uh, he owns a uh, Washtenaw fly anglers company and their guide service, uh, in the central Arkansas area. And, uh, you know, every so often they're posting 20, 22, 24 inch small. Hey, I'm that's, like, that's oh, nice. that's one's nice. so bad. Dude, there, there's that's some here in Texas, but they're kind of, they're far and few between, at least compared to like right. RGs and stuff. But there's some in, uh, there's some in some lakes like up North, um, I've heard that there's some smallmouths like in the Guadalupe and in the San Marcos, and of course in the Devils, they got some pretty nice ones out there. But mm-hmm. I mean, they're that they're all all those places are too far from College Station, unfortunately. So mm. we just right. got largies and uh, striped bass mainly out here. Yeah, that's. I mean, smallmouth. I can go. Um, I don't live far from like any of the rivers. So basically anywhere up here for the most part, unless it's like its own little tiny secluded little lake or pond is going to have smallmouth in it. Nice. Um, but we, we have smallmouth in the rivers. Most of the time we call them river rats cause they're small compared to normal. Like if you catch a three pound smallmouth or like a 18 inch smallmouth up here in the river, that's a, that's a damn good smallmouth. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen them bigger. I've seen them, you know, bigger in the river and whatnot, but like, you can go out in Lake Ontario and you can catch a 24, 25 inch for five or six pounds. And that's a, that's a Northern smallmouth. That's (laughs) That's freaking awesome. So earlier you're talking about species that y'all have up there and you're talking about, you know, muskie and pike and pickerel. So I've never heard of pickerel being up there. Is that like, is, are they everywhere? Just like, you know, a a pike or a muskie would be. They're like infested up here. (laughs) Really? Um, yeah, because I've always heard people call the pickerel the southern uh, cousin of the pike, and so I guess I just yeah. because of that analogy, I just figured, oh, well, they're not up north, but that's crazy. So, are are they small, big? How big are they up there? Typically? Um, I mean, we they can they can get decent size. Uh, yeah, they're they're chain pickerel. I mean, you can catch them. I guess I've never put one on a bump board to see, but probably 27, 28 inches long. Oh wow! I mean, you can get them four or five pounds i mean i've caught caught some some decently big ones i mean most of the ones you're catching are probably i don't know 23 24 25 inches i would say average but you know like like anything with anywhere they they get big and you catch little ones um yeah the ones in our river systems are probably smaller than the ones in our lakes um and usually in the lakes oneida lake they're terrible they're terrible in oneida lake um I believe they're still doing it, but they used to have derbies in the spring to kind of cull them out because um, really? they're so in, they're so many. And I don't know if they're in technically considered invasive, but I don't think the DEC up here uh, really likes them. I see. Um, but you know, That's I don't. Nuts. 
most anything I catch, I don't have interest in really eating. I'm honestly yeah. not like a seafood guy. I just like the sport of catching them. So most things I'll do catch and release. Um, if I catch a good deep water, you know, trout or salmon might keep that, but right. Like I don't, I'm not eating bass or pickerel or pike. Granted, if I'm out camping or something and, you know, kind of living off it, maybe that's yeah, a different right. story, but so it definitely is on the topic of species. Is there like a species on your bucket list that you haven't caught that you really want to, or like a place that you want to go that you haven't got the fish yet? Uh, in the North or in general? Just in general. Um, yeah, I guess there's, there's probably a bunch. Um, I want to catch like peacock bass down in Florida. Dude, um, same. I want to catch, uh, uh, what are they, the knife clown knife fish? Yeah. Those things are wicked down. looking. Catch one of them. That'd be cool. Um, I think everyone will agree with catching tarpon on a fly. Absolutely. That would be nuts. Um, destination. Um, I mean, I want to check out. There's so much. I mean, just in, in bass water, like, you know, I want to go to, man, anywhere down south. I'm going to lake down south and I'll fish it. Um, right. Like the Harris Chain okeechobee but i hear that's kind of going through a rough patch with their mm-hmm. department of natural resources spray and stuff um talking yeah yeah lake fork lake fork lake i was fork. just gonna say lake fork really any throw me in a, in a pond in texas that'd be cool <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear i hear they right. get kind of big down there I mean, my um, biggest bass came from a pond it was like eight pounds eight-ish pounds. oh wow Yep. Yeah. That's probably about mine was a private pond. Actually it was a private pond. I was, I learned to fly fish in oh, nice. Um, nice. the same, same pond as a family pond. Um, my yeah, biggest bass around. was only, I, how big do you think that bass was that I caught right outside my apartment? I'll say probably like three, four. Uh, yeah, about that. Yeah. I think that's my biggest bass, uh, conventional land fly. So hmm, nice. I, I'm not, I've, I've always kind of been known for catching all of the small fish <laughs> until that weekend. And then that weekend I caught, yeah, it was nuts. I caught that big bass. I caught like a, a 25 pound plus carp, um, caught big Brown, that 28 inch cutthroat, like a bunch of big fish all in one weekend when for years prior, I don't think I'd caught a fish over six inches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, that weekend was was wild. That was a, that was a good was weekend nuts. for fishing. That sounds like a good weekend. So um, I see you got a hat on over there. It says uh, a corny boards. What's up with that? So um, I build and design and create custom cornhole boards. Nice. Sick. How long have you been um, doing that for? Oh, geez, probably 2019. I think was my first year doing that. I had a uh, I built a set out of boredom and then my buddy asked me he goes do you think you could wrap that like cincinnati bangles i'm like of course i I could do whatever i want (laughs) so uh, i did and he he bought them for like i don't know 50 bucks or something and then he showed a friend who showed a friend who placed an order who told a friend and word of mouth spread and then next thing you know i'm making a facebook page and then um it got it got going to where I was selling a decent bit, and then COVID hit. The world, you know, stopped turning. Mm-hmm. Everything shut down. Um, but the one thing, like COVID, obviously affected the wood price and all of that to continue building. But the one blessing in disguise of it 
was the stimulus checks that everybody was getting. And everyone's getting like $600 every other month and doesn't know what to spend it on because, you know, why would you spend it on necessities? <laughs> so, um, all of a sudden I went from building like 10 sets of cornhole boards to like a hundred sets of cornhole oh, boards wow. because everyone's like, that's well, that's nuts. pretty cool. So, um, sold a bunch of them and now I'm able to, uh, grow as a business, I suppose, um, have a website and whatnot. Um, that's awesome. Been yeah. trying to, they're expensive to ship, but I have shipped them. Um, and I do for the most part, unless you have something extremely specific you want that you found online that I can get my hands on. Uh, everything I do is pretty much custom. I spend many hours in Photoshop designing, recreating, um, I've done pictures of, you know, dad with his kid holding his first buck or the kid's first buck, or I've done, uh, wedding ones with people's names. I've done sports teams, but you know, don't send me a cease and desist NFL. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't post about, but they have been done. I'll admit that. Um, but, uh, I've, uh, networked with some really great people. Um, I get uh, their vinyl wraps I put on top, and now I've hit a point where I can do direct print boards, um, where it's actually like the whole top that you're playing on goes into this gigantic printer, and it prints it right onto the wood. They put like an epoxy clear coat on it, out the door, need no worries about it. Most of them that I do are are like a vinyl wrap with just a ton of clear coat on top, and they're a lot lot easier on my side because... I don't have that big printer, so I have to kind of buy that out and it just gets expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I work with another company that's out of the Southern tier of New York who, uh, makes my custom bags that have my company name on them and whatnot. So, um, it's grown, it's grown into a thing. I'm actually, I'm now buying my wood out of Virginia, <clears throat> um, because it's next to impossible to find three quarter 18 millimeter Baltic birch in New York. And that's what everyone likes to play on. That's what the pros play on. That's heavy. It's dense. I'm sure. I was just about to ask what kind of wood you used. What's that? I was just about to ask what kind of wood you used. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's tournament grade Baltic birch 13, 13 plies in there. It's, it's heavy. Um, you know, what I say is that these boards, you know, grandma's not going to throw them around, but the kids aren't going to break them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Dude, that's so sick, man. I had a person, um, you know, pull their truck. They used them as like jack stands for a truck. And I'm like, dude, I do not, I do not condone you doing that. (laughs) That's really good marketing, but I can't share that because that's (laughs) my (laughs) opinion. So that uh, that avoids warranty, I guess, huh? Yeah, that one avoids warranty. (laughs) Uh, I I sold a set to this guy that um, he he races uh there's big like dirt modifieds up here uh dirt mm-hmm. race cars um he races those his son races motocross um decent decent amount of wealth in the family they're they're very they're doing very well for themselves and he drives like a brand new um i think it's like a ram 3500 fully loaded like lariat and they had like a 54 inch trailer uh camper on it and uh towing it with you know gooseneck and whatnot and uh they were packing up to leave and they just bought the boards and they were kind of in like a rush to get out of there because there's like a storm coming in they were staying right on lake ontario and there's a storm coming across from like canada and uh he had his kids pick up the cornhole boards 
Well, um, they picked up the cornhole boards, but they didn't put them away. They conveniently <laughs> hid them behind the back tires. They threw them under the back of the campers, what they did to try to get them out of the rain. So I see what they were doing. But dad's idea was throw them into the campers so we can get the hell out of here and get on the road and like not just sit in this field during a freaking thunderstorm. So dad backed out and felt the trailer go thump, thump. And I'm getting a text about an hour later asking, he's like, I know these aren't covered under warranty, but I think I'm going to need some new tops. They didn't break, but it like it cracked the clear coat I put on. It was like spider webbed and it uh-huh. ripped the vinyl underneath. Mm. I'm like, wow. So they took the weight of a 54 foot like camper. I, I guess that's a mobile home, small mansion. <laughs> and he backed over. Like, wow, I guess they, they hold up pretty good. I mean, I've had people like jump four wheelers off them and stupid stuff like that. So they're, they're pretty Dude, solid. That's they're pretty impressive. I would say so. That's very impressive. I've made a few cornhole boards and, um, they, they were, uh, proper size, but definitely not that, that kind of quality. I don't even know. I think I used pine for them or something. Okay. Um, I mean, if you're running like a three quarter inch top on like two by four frame, that would be pretty, that'd be pretty solid. Yeah. Um, And that's what I did. I did a two by four frame, two by four legs with a, I think it was a, three quarter inch lag bolt through to where I could fold them underneath right, right. and, you know, cross member in two by four and then topped it. And then I did a, a Shosuke bond top on it. Mm-hmm. Um, just burned it and then sanded it and then, uh, clear coated it after that. I mean, they, cool. they lasted a good while. I don't, I don't even remember what happened to the ones that I kept for myself. Cause I sold a few of them. And then the ones that I had, did I give them to you, Jose, when I moved to Arkansas? Negative. Maybe I gave them to my buddy, Mike. I don't know where they went. I know that they're still in my garage when I moved up here. And then when I went to go clean out my house a few months later, uh, I gave them to somebody. I don't remember who it was though, but I do. I haven't played cornhole in freaking forever. So the bags that you make, are they sand or bean? So I do corn like traditional corn. Uh And then they have like a, it's a plastic resin media for the more like pro feel, like what the pros use. Yeah. Um, I use a duck cloth on one side and then on the other side, it's like a felt. So you have mm-hmm. a stick slide and a slick side is how I say it. Um, I see. The corn is a little bit cheaper because, you know, that's six bucks a bag at tractor supply, whereas your actual resin, plastic resin is more expensive to buy for my, I call him my bag guy and everyone kind of laughs that I just have a bag guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, No, his name's Luke. He's, he's great. And these things, I mean, I wouldn't, I'd put him next to any name brand out there they're they're really good quality I've n- i haven't had one come back minus a guy left one that was corn filled he was camping left it on a picnic table and the squirrels ripped it apart to get the corn inside <laughs> yeah, for, for playing i've never had one <laughs> issue so i'm like i'm not even gonna look at another market i'll i'll pay whatever he tells me yeah right so yeah i've, I've played with some trash bags and some trash boards mm-hmm. i mean a lot of them that you get are just that you know quarter inch thick Yep. You know, just uh, the, the bag bounces when it hits in the middle. It's like, yep. oh, so you know, yep. you have to hit at the front. So it slides up. I just cheap boards. <laughs> when, uh, when I was kind of doing some R and like R and D, just figuring out what's decent product to use and whatnot. I found these, it was like Amazon. They were like 1099 for an eight pack of bags and they guaranteed to be one pound, six inch by six inch, no taller than one inch standing. I'm like, okay, so the regulation bags, well, we left them out and it didn't rain or anything. It was just like the dew of night, like just the moisture setting. 
and uh, we got up in the morning and we were playing Well, we're throwing and there's like just streaks of mud. And we're like, what the heck? And you grab those bags and you squish them. They were just filled with sand. Hmm. I'm like, that's crazy. What? So like the water got in and it's like washing out my inside coming out through the seams. I'm like, well, these are stupid. So those glass. Um, I found just cheap ones on like eBay and Amazon where you throw them a dozen times, then they hit the, they hit and then the stitching just explodes and all the crap inside blows out and you yep. know, people plant corn in their backyards now. Um, <laughs> so I wonder if anybody's ever had some with corn where the corn is sprouted. That's, that's, that's where I thought yours was going whenever you're talking about the water. I wonder if that's ever happened. So I should, uh, we had that Facebook group you set. I'll send you guys a picture after this and it's nothing to do with cornhole boards, but my buddy, one of my best friends, Darren, he sent me a picture. <laughs> he goes only, so we live in Oswego County in New York. He goes only in Oswego County. Do you see this? This is this house and it's like 25 feet off the road. It's like the middle of a town. And their whole front yard is like cornfield. But it's only in Oswego County do you see this. I'm like, what the hell is that? That's crazy. That's I'll wild. send you guys that after, after we're done here. That was, that was comical. I'm like, what is even happening? <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that here or in Texas. I mean, there's some areas in Texas where the house won't be far off off the you know road and there's corn in front of it but it's also part of a big cornfield they're just you know maximizing the right, area right, right. Plant, you know but i've never seen it in a town i think the most texas thing i've seen is i was driving down this road in kingsville like this little neighborhood do i look i have to look over and on the roof of a garage dude there's a damn prickly pear growing out of the roof like I, <laughs> really yeah i have no idea it's just like it's like how does that even happen man and those things can grow anywhere. There's an oak tree at the South Lana River State Park at the little check-in station. It's got a prickly pear growing out of the oak tree on one of the branches. It's freaking yeah, cool. wild. Dude. I've seen that down on the coast before. I've seen like prickly pear and other types of uh, cacti growing off the off the live oaks and stuff. That's it's incredible. Nuts. Yeah, those things are wild. Yeah. So I, I think the most Arkansas thing that I've seen um, has nothing to do with anything growing. It's more... Uh, somebody just standing on the sidewalk, walking backwards, leaning forward or yeah. sideways. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of meth usage here. So that's probably yeah, the most no, no drugs involved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. you, uh, you have the cornhole board business, right? And then you have another business to do with dough urine. Is that what you said? Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm a glorified pea salesman. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there ain't nothing wrong with that. Um, so yeah, I, um, I came up with an idea. This one's a little more newer. This is my third or fourth year doing this. Mm -hmm. um, I would buy, and I don't want to, you know, product bash because I think a lot of the products on the shelves are great products, but I would buy stuff and you'd get, you know, you'd get the little bottle of urine and it's like dark mud brown and it says 100% urine. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, I've never seen an animal pee that color. Right. And uh, my in-laws are dairy farmers, so like you see cows pee, and it's not brown. It's sure it's yellow, but it's not like whatever. And I'm like, that can't be fresh. That was my thought. Is I'm like, it's sitting on a shelf. Sure, there's there's a shelf life. I'm sure. And they add. Uh, I've discovered that a lot of companies add like a sodium benzoate. I think is the name of it. I'm not a chemist, but I guess that preserves it. Yeah. Um, but it it would just turn dingy brown and then you open it and it smells like ammonia. 
because that's what urea is. Yeah. Um, but then I think it is, is I just have this like, again, my, my in-laws being dairy farmers is you can walk through the barn, you can see a cow pee and then you can smell it and it doesn't smell like ammonia. It smells like pee and it's, yeah. it's a weird science I'm sure. So I had this idea and I'm like, I wonder if there's like a whitetail ranch, whitetail farm, someone that would probably be growing deer because, you know, there's a lot, there's restaurants that'll do like venison burgers and such and like grow them for me. Yeah. I wonder if there is a farm that would sell their urine and how the hell do you approach a farmer and say, I want to buy your deer. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, after a lot of dead end phone calls, um, of people that thought that I was crazy as hell. Um, <laughs> finally one person is like, you know, you're not the first person to want to do that. And I'm like, Oh, and then they said that they're with a, it's a non-disclosure agreement. So even I don't know who it is, but they mm-hmm. said that they're with a known reputable brand supplying them. So they have this farm facility. It's more of a facility than it is a farm. Um, with all of these beautiful deer, like, Big fat does, big huge like sixteen point drop tine box, like just stuff out of movies. Uh-huh. Um, and they have this essentially this barn, and they'll put the dough in the barn. And I guess how they do it, and again, not a scientist here, just a pea salesman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how they how they do it is they have like louvers on the windows, and they'll close the windows, and they'll they'll make the day for those deer darker, longer. They'll put them in. I don't want to say complete. It's not complete darkness, but it's just dimmer. So they'll yeah. give them shorter hours of daylight, along with they have a cooling system. So in the middle of like August, they'll get you know, 20 dough or something in this big barn, make it darker, cool it down. It tricks them into thinking it's an early fall and they'll start going into heat. They'll start producing estrus. Now, when they feed them like humans, when you eat and drink a bunch, you usually have to use the bathroom kind of right after they clip them in a stall as if they were a cow, they feed them their normal feed. And there's just a collection tray on the back. So when they use the bathroom, it gets collected into that tray. It goes down and gets pumped into a, essentially a catch from that catch. It goes direct to like gallon jugs. I mean, I could bring a thousand gallon jug if I wanted them just to fill it, but I buy it per gallon direct from the deer, deer pan, pan, main tank, main tank bottle, UPS me. Um, so it's essentially as direct as you can get without, following a deer with a bottle behind it um that's awesome so they already had that set up and i'm just thinking my god this has to be so freaking expensive and it is (laughs) it's quite expensive (laughs) so um i always thought i'm like well deer urine in the store it's a byproduct right so it's gonna get thrown away even if you don't buy it it doesn't it's free. It's a by, it's a byproduct of raising that animal. So sure. Great for the middleman to figure out how to make money off of that. But on a business standpoint, does it have to be so expensive? <laughs> Cause, right. um, that's why you see a bottle of urine in the store for $30 is because someone says it's $30 and they have to buy it right. and then market it. So I've grown a relationship with that farm 
and they can basically supply me for the most part with anything I want as long as it's within reason of the time frames of the seasons, mm-hmm. which up north our rut is usually in full swing approximately around Halloween up here. Um, I see. So like right now they're not doing much. Like the bucks are just starting to rub off their velvet. They're just starting to get into it. So they are able to do that, um, to collect that urine from those does that are going into heat in the same barn. There's like a, like a fence on the other side. They have some of their bucks. Now they have specific bucks that are big. They have great genetics, but once they start their bone growth on their head, they clip them so they can handle them. It's like a bull kind of deal. They keep them in there and they told me that they basically, they clip it to um, protect them from each other because how they collect the, I sell buck and rut urine. Same thing as they let them get close to those does without breeding them. Men are men kind of thing. They get feisty. They get fired up. All their testosterone's running. They want to fight with each other to get that hot dough, collect that urine. That urine has a lot of their testosterone progesterone, I believe, is the other chemical in that hormone. And it's got all their hormones as if they are pissed off, mad, wanting to fight whoever who's in the way of his, you know, little girlfriend that he's trying to hook up with. Hmm. That's oh. crazy. I always wondered how they how they went about harvesting uh, urine from animals. I I just always assumed it was probably something like uh, putting a uh, what are those things called uh, catheter. Yeah, I always thought it was like a catheter or something like that. But uh, it seems a lot more efficient the way that they actually do it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. This is um, basically it's it's that catch pan, and you know if they if they poop, there's like a screen so the poop doesn't wash in with the pee kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it just, it's on a, it's on a pitched angle. So it just flows to one way. It goes into a catch basin, gets pumped into a tank. They keep obviously all the tanks separate. So you don't have blending issues out of the tank, into the bottle, straight to the consumer, which would be myself. I bottle it into small two ounce bottles for, you know, customers to use. Cause you know, who wants to buy a gallon of dough urine? Right. Yeah, like $400 <laughs> other than me. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's how, um, that's how it's done. But like friends and stuff that question me about how do I obtain it? I just tell them I have like a little catch pan and a really good ghillie suit. And I just <laughs> army color on the woods, <laughs> buy that pan under hot dough. She doesn't even know Dude, I'm there. That's hilarious. It's like going um, to the rut. I'm not out yeah. there hunting. I'm out there trying to catch some <laughs> yes. <ass. laughs> I don't. I don't shoot the big bucks. I just want his pee. I don't care about his animal. <laughs> and uh, I don't uh, think we we preface this. So for our listeners who may not know what we're talking about, this is used for hunting purposes. We're not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> we're perfect. <laughs> yeah. Like, God yeah. dang, those dudes are some weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't. Uh, you know, don't don't consume it. Don't vape it. Don't use it as salad dressing. Don't mix it with your chew. <laughs> so, actually, this is a good point. So, how would you use this product then in a hunting situation? For those who may not know. So, um, traditionally, a white-tailed deer has some of the well. Comparably in America, it has some of the strongest olfactory glands in their nose of most animals here. Um, I'm in the Northeast, um, so they probably have the strongest nose of anything around here, even more than like a bloodhound kind of deal. Um, Big communication with them is scent. So like us, we see, we hear, we feel, we smell, whatnot. Um, But there's some times where you can be 500 
yards away from a buck and he'll kind of look in your direction, stand up real tall, turn around and walk away. Well, he just smelled you. He didn't like something and he turned around and walked away. Um, a lot of times they'll smell you before they see you or hear you because they have such a sense of smell that we don't have. So it doesn't make sense to us naturally as humans because we don't have that good sense of smell. You know, you you get home and grandma's baking cookies. Mm, man, that smells delicious. Well, we can't smell when our romantic partner is in the mood, if you will, where deer can. Um, when a when a doe goes into heat, her her hormones change. Um that essentially in a sense of smell is telling a buck that she's ready to breed, um, that her body is ready to reproduce and, you know, do what they have to do at the same time, the bucks smell that, um, once the bucks make that connection, they're chasing that doe. Well, there's more than one buck in the woods. So then another buck comes in. That's when you have bucks fighting. So when they're fighting, just like, you know, Mr. Tough guy at the bar has high testosterone and wants to fight another guy who has high testosterone. All of that hormone comes out in their urine. Um, and they have also other secretional glands on their body. They have, um, you know, some kind of between their knees on their thighs. Uh, they have some that are in between their toes. They actually have communication glands in their head that are non testosterone. They're just communication. If you see a buck, you know, smacking his head into trees and whatnot. Um, they have a orbital preorbital gland by their eye. They have forehead gland. They have interdigital gland. That's between like their, their hooves, their toes, however you want to do that. They have tarsal metatarsal glands. They have all these glands that secrete different scents that say different things. Um, so basically a doe when she's ready to breed will essentially for lack of a better term, off gas her musk. Like you'll just smell if you're a buck, you'll just smell that she's kind of ready. Yeah. Bucks a lot of times will go and they'll scrape the ground and they'll they'll clear like a three or four foot patch underneath a low hanging branch and they'll pee in it. They'll put their knees, their back knees together, squat down and they'll pee down their legs um, into that. And that's basically saying, hey, I'm here. And that's called a, you know, a scrape. Mm -hmm. um, and then they'll they'll rub their face in like a low hanging pine and that's almost like a, in a sense, every deer smells a little bit different. That's kind of like leaving a serial number to who was here. Yeah. Um, later on, later on in the season, as you know, it gets hotter, um, as she gets hotter, more ready to breed. Now they're marking their territory saying, you know, get the hell out of here. This is my doe. And then another buck might come in and pee in that spot and say, mm -mm, that's my doe. And that's when you see bucks fighting is because they're trying to claim their territory and trying to claim all the doe in the area. Yeah. So a lot of this communication that says, Hey, I'm the big stud in this area. Go smell my pee. That's what it says is it's, it's their, their levels of hormones in their urine, their musk that they're leaving behind. And it's her, you know, letting out her scent saying, I'm ready to breed. Somebody come breed with me. Yeah. And then it's all the men fighting for her basically. I see. So if you're out there hunting and stuff, <clears throat> you would use it, you would put it uh, near a scrape or out in the woods right. for, in, in order to attract the bucks in. Right, right. So a very, a very common tactic is, um, you know, it's, it's a scent line where people, they sell scent wicks. Um, you can dip them into urine and it's like a cotton wick and it'll just, you know, draw the urine out and then you mm -hmm. hang it and then the wind just carries it whatever way. Um, a very common tactic is a very hot dough, an estrus dough. That's going to tell a buck in the area, hey, there's a hot doe over here. I can smell her, right? Yeah. So 
we use uh, scent wicks. A lot of guys will just, you know, steal tampons from their old lady. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Tie them to a tree branch and hang them out. Um, you can also yourself with your boot, whatever, kick a, like a three foot patch of dirt. Just clean all the leaves out of it and pour urine in it. Um, that's essentially making a mock scrape, they call it. Um, I also sell, uh, it's a 100% hemp rope. Um, and I have a, an orbital gland. It's like a kind of a deodorant stick and it has all of their head glands of communication. You can hang that rope out of the tree, wipe it with that stick. Um, and then you have the scrape nearby or right underneath it. And that essentially to them, that mimics exactly what they're doing in nature, but you're putting it in a spot that's more convenient for you. So if you have a tree stand, you know, 200 feet off the main trail where they're hitting, you can put in one or two mock scrapes and hopefully kind of direct their traffic to be like, who the heck's here? You know, like, like leaving that, that scent trail of the urine you're putting out obviously isn't a deer that's in your area. So it's a, it's a new, it's a new face. It's a new thing. And then once the season gets closer and you have, you know, a bunch of rutted up, pissed off bucks and then you put in a new buck who the hell is this guy and why is he around my women a lot of yeah. times that's a that's a killer because he's looking for a fight or he's looking for that hot doe to breed with yeah and that's all that's that's awesome that's a, it's, so I, it's i'm not much of a of a hunter not well i wouldn't say i'm not much of a hunter i'd say i'm not much of an experienced hunter um i do enjoy hunting i just don't go very often and so like a lot of that's just news to me that i've never heard so i am that person that may not know <laughs> so thank, so <laughs> yeah, thank you yeah, for all no. that <laughs> it's um it's it's an interesting uh it's an interesting science and and similar to bass fishing is you know a couple of years ago i just got obsessed with learning how deer work because yeah. i figured Truthfully, between you guys and all the listeners listening to this, I've never, I don't have any buck hanging on my wall and I own a business that sells products that has been proven time and time and time again to put big bucks on walls. Um, so I'm still learning. I'm, you know, I'm 28 years old. I've been hunting for geez, probably 15 ish years now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I still haven't shot the big one i've i've passed on a bunch i'm i'm kind of selective i've had opportunity yeah. um actually we we had a we had a buck we named houdini because he kept just disappearing when you think you'd see him he'd disappear i had him at full draw at about 40 yards and he wouldn't step around the tree you know that story and yeah i had a shot and i wasn't confident in myself to let the arrow fly and kick myself in the ass every day after that one because I probably should have <laughs> let the arrow fly. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, so a, that's a good thing, per- though. Like, if you don't feel good about a shot, it's probably best not to take. That's so, that's that's my reassurance. Is yeah. you know, I would have much, I'd much, I'm much happier watching that buck walk away totally unharmed than gut shotting it, shooting it in the butt, hitting yeah. it, and just giving it a big slice across its back or injuring that. Like, that's the respect of the animal. Yeah, absolutely. That goes, that goes back to fish is that's why I don't keep fish because I don't eat fish. I'll catch them right. and I'll release them and I'll, I'm only going to shoot a deer if I have a plan for it. Right. I'm not right. going to, I'm not just going to shoot because it's fun. Sure. It's, it's fun to shoot, you know, whatever, but I'm, I'm not going to go out and shoot a, shoot a doe and shoot a buck and then have five freezers full of meat because I'm not going to eat all of that. Sure. I'm yeah, sure exactly. I can find people to give it away to, but I also want to respect the animal. And if it's a big buck like that, that's a memorable buck. I don't want to place a bad shot on because a I'm going to injure it. It might die down the road and it might suffer until it's death. I might gut shot it and ruin the meat or some of it anyways, but 
the the big thing of it too is if you take that shot, there's a chance you'll never see that buck again because now it's not safe. It doesn't feel safe walking through. You know, you're coming into their living room trying to hide and kill them. Yeah. yeah. So you don't want to take a shot and graze it or completely miss. Then it's like, well, something's not right about here. And then you just blew out your hunting area. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Damn. So is bow hunting your preferred method? Um. I, I guess I'm, I'm indifferent. I, I love bow hunting um, just because of the closeness. Yeah. You have to be right up close and personal. Like you're not shooting. Truthfully, you're not shooting much more than 50 yards. Yeah. Um, and you have to be perfect. Everything about bow. You have to, if you shoot a deer bow hunting, you did everything perfect that day. You yeah. sat in the perfect stand. You played the perfect wind. You saw the deer come in, you you perfectly grabbed your bow, you perfectly knocked your arrow, you perfectly drew it, and you fired a perfect shot to kill that deer. There's no, yeah. with, a, with a rifle, we're in, you know, kind of big country up here. I can shoot a, I can shoot a buck at 400 yards with a seven mil, and that buck never knew I was there. I'm in granddad's flannel, I just farted, I'm smoking a cigarette kind of thing. <laughs> like, they're, they're so far away, they're not, they're not picking up any of their senses because they're across a valley. Right. You just get a long flat shot with a rifle. You dump them. They don't even know where you are, where I feel like, I think it's great. I think the timing's great that, that New York has a bow season before the regular. So you can pattern those deer and literally get right on top of them. But I also think that for your most average Joe, it's nice to have a rifle and a shotgun season to follow that. So obviously you can right. shoot them with a gun at a distance for those that you don't want to be that extremely up close and personal with them. Some some people aren't aren't comfortable with that. They kind of get scared because it's an animal in the woods that's near them. Right. See, I, I feel like you have to be definitely have to be more of a sportsman to be a bow hunter. And yeah, you yeah. know, it just it it's crazy to see that some people go out elk hunting and moose hunting and bear hunting with a bow. Hell, I've even seen people dove hunt with a bow, and that's I mean, wow, just the amount of skill that you have to that's have. Incredible. It's insane. I saw it actually at Cabela's in Buda, Texas, when they first opened. They had right by their mojo stand and I all that. I remember that, yeah. And dude, they had a video of people bow hunting dove. And I'm like, what the hell that's is in, going that's on? That's crazy. Like, that's you just crazy. have to be amazing. It, it, it's a it's a craft and you have to be good at it yeah. to be successful. Yeah, it's it's a you learn to be I, I guess I guess bow hunting versus gun hunting. I've learned a lot more about the deer woods bow hunting than i have gun hunting oh for is sure it forces you to be quiet it forces you to take the perfect route and play the wind because you're you know you're try to walk through your living room but someone's standing in the corner how how <laughs> how hidden do they have to be for you not to see them when you're walking through your living room every single right. day kind of thing yeah. so you have to be pretty good to, to to go into their house and not get caught yeah that's a good way of putting that's it that, yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Um, yeah. yeah, archery. So, I, I kind of got into archery for the same reason I got into fly fishing. It's just to open up like more opportunities. Because at least here in Texas, I feel like the vast majority of people going to the field are predominantly using guns versus bows. And yep. like Russell was saying, like I love hunting, but I'm not experienced. And a lot of that's just because of access. Like Texas is 98% privately owned. So unless you got money... Right or you know somebody with some land who's willing to let you go hunt opportunities here are pretty limited, but there are public lands available. And, um, a lot of those public lands are archery only, which is nice. So that's one of the reasons why I got into it. And actually I, I 
shot a bow for the first time this week and try and in two years maybe just to try and like get back into it i'm super rusty but i forgot how much fun it is just to fling some arrows yeah it is man so this year i'm gonna try and do some public land hunting and i don't think i'm gonna be successful because public land is a whole different game like oh yeah yeah. So I know it's going to take a lot of time to learn and that's okay. I'm not expecting to be successful. I just want to get out there, learn. And, um, I really want to try and just get a hog with a bow. I've never shot a hog with a bow and then, and then just go from there. And I like to cook too. So I'm, I'm looking forward to try and, and, and oh, you know, exper- awesome. experiment yeah. with, with that too. So we'll see yeah. how it goes, man. I'm looking forward to it, but it's going to be a long road. Good. But- Good luck. Good luck. We don't, we don't have hogs up here and that's, that's been an interest of mine. I want to try, um, we have some family down in Florida. I want to try shooting them, but Mm. hog, hog is one of those. That seems like fun. I saw a massive hog here in Arkansas the other day and I have, that's the first one that I've seen since I've lived here. And I'd say it was probably, probably pushing 200 pounds this is a good size hog right off the side of the highway i was like damn wow um but yeah I've, i haven't I've, i haven't been hog hunting and granted the last time i went hog hunt was uh modern gun was with the rifle which i mean there's no seasons in texas um i don't know if it there is anywhere else but in texas there's no season for it as long as you have a valid hunting license you can Dude, hunt them Doesn't there's matter if it's day no or night season or like that no bag limits it, a wild boar just or wild hogs are just like fair game because they're just such a nuisance yeah so I've seen some uh, some some pretty creative ways. We'll we'll use the word creative ways <laughs> to harvest them. Does, yeah. does it involve a uh, two part chemical? Um, I've seen it. I've seen them with a two part chemical. What about a helicopter? I've seen a helicopter. I've seen a mounted mounted gun on top of like a UTV. I've seen them out of a pickup. I've seen like obviously just the bait traps and then just like the cattle panel traps that they drop yeah. at a feed zone. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I'm just crazy. Like, I can't, I can't imagine just an AR out of, out of a freaking helicopter. Dude, right. And I kind of like, I'm on the fence cause like it sounds cool and it's taking, it's, it's taking care of an ecological was essentially an ecological disaster. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know how I really feel about that from like an ethical standpoint. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I'm a, I'm a pretty but, ethical person. Yeah. But, uh, but I feel the is, exact same way, but it is efficient. Just, you know, as opposed to going out there like one arrow at a time when you can just chase them down with a AR, a couple mags and the helicopter and, you know, take a bunch out that way. So see, right. I feel like if, if there was like a, it was a team effort. So say there's an aerial attack, right? Say you're in a helicopter with an AR and you're going and mowing them down. And then there's another team on the ground going and harvesting them. That meat can go like, I mean, you can have a big cookout. You could donate it. Like there's so many things that you could do just, I mean, cause I'm just being honest. It would be awesome to be hunting from a helicopter. I would love no, to do man, it. Like it, but it really would. I'm not going to sit here that, and tell you that I wouldn't <laughs> do that if the opportunity came up. I would just right. probably sit there afterwards, like, huh? I know. I don't. I don't really know how I feel, but I'm going to. I'm, I'm definitely not going to say no. Right. <laughs> but if, but if you can make it a team effort and have a team to go harvest the meat, I mean, I think it'd be amazing. Yeah. Didn't you know somebody that did a helicopter hunt back I, in? I, I yeah. did. I almost had the chance too. So I, I won't name the ranch, but I used to work on this ranch, uh, one summer doing some, some stuff out there. And, uh, they were trying to, as far as I understand, they were trying to maintain this ranch as like, as na- as natural and native as possible. And so there were two exotics out there. Um, Nilgai 
which is a species of antelope, really great meat, awesome looking animal, but it is uh, non-native. And uh, there was a bunch of hogs and they're trying to take care of the hog problem. So they did have some people in helicopters go out there at one point and try and get rid of them. And I think they would do the same for no guy, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, so this other, this intern at the, at the same year that I was working, he got the chance to go and do it. And, and he had a YouTube video, actually, uh, I don't know if it's still up or not, but he had a YouTube video of that going down. It looked insane. And then the, the guy, uh, my boss who set that all, all up, he told us, the other interns, like there might be possible, like more, um, there might be more opportunities in the future for you guys to come and do it. And unfortunately it just it never happened that way. Um, but we were allowed to like have a rifle with us, uh, well firearms with us just because it was like, it was a massive ranch. They were having some like, you know, issues with, uh, with, uh, like trespassers and stuff like that. So they're just oh, like, yeah. you know, like keep, you know, keep yourselves armed or whatever if you if you're comfortable and all that stuff so we did i think they since tightened up the regulations on that but um they also like we so we had a rifle they're like yeah if you shoot if you see some pigs shoot them because they want them off the ranch essentially so there were some times that we'd go we sit like a little water trough or something and in the evenings after the work was done and and try and get some and we'd like take the back straps and stuff like that and go back to the ranch house cook them up but uh but yeah, man, I never got the chance to do it. I think, like I said, like from an ethical standpoint, I think I would have trouble doing it. But for research purposes, I think I would engage in. It <laughs> <laughs> was a field study. <laughs> you got to um, do the field study. And one of the guys, uh, he went on vacation to Hawaii. And he's like, I don't really know what to do in Hawaii. Like, obviously, yeah, you want to go like lay on the beach and drink the drinks and just it's Hawaii kind of thing, but he's like, I want to do something. He's not like a surfer. He's not anything like that. And he's like, huh? Well, they, they land and they're at this resort and he's asking people like, what do you do? And they're like, Oh, well, we're going to go like fishing out in the ocean. And this person's like, I'm going to take like, um, surfing instructions and then try to surf in the ocean. And this person's going to go eat some exotic food that's on the islands and whatever. And he's like, so like the second day, him and his wife and his two daughters were just roaming around. I, don't, I think they were in like Honolulu and they're just roaming around and he's like, Oh, he needed something. And there's like this little, like kind of half gift shop gas station kind of place. And he walked in Well, they had like a pegboard with local businesses on it. You know, if you need this, call this person kind of thing. And he's like, I ran into the bathroom quick and I come out and my daughter's holding this flyer. And she's like, he's like, what is this? And she's like, dad, I think you'd like this. He goes, what the heck is it? And he looks at it and it's a dog and knife hunt for wild boar. And he goes, Hmm. He's like, this sounds expensive. So, um, he's like, but let's try it. Let's, let's see what it is. So he calls a number. It's like a little pull tab. He calls a number and guys like, well, we, we got a crew. We're looking for two more people. If you or, you know, anyone else want to go tomorrow, you know, be, be at this address at like 4 a.m. And, uh, we're going to, we're going to go do a dog and knife hunt. He goes, what do I need? They're like, bring, you know, good boots, good pants, good shirt, but you're going to be in the wilderness. They supply everything. So he's like, okay, sure. So it was like, I don't know, $1,100, $1,200, whatever to go do this. And he shows up and it's like these, like one guy that's running it. And then a couple like more native 
um, Hawaiian guys that are like helping out. And he's like, this one guy pulls up with uh, this like pickup, long bed pickup, and it's got like eight dogs on it. So how these dogs work and, and running dogs is very, it's not very common up north. So like we're not used to seeing this. Yeah. Um, they run dogs through like the jungle of Hawaii and you're running through like the stuff you don't see on TV and it's like all this crazy stuff and you have dogs that chase and dogs that hold. So you have these dogs that chase these hogs and kind of get them into like a corner and then you have more aggressive dogs that like hold them in place. Then they have this GPS tracker and then you have like a 12 inch Bowie knife and that's what you kill the hogs with. So they would chase these, these hogs through the jungle get them pinned in whatever spot. And he's like, they pointed at these people that were like right up front they paid, they're all good to go. And then they point at his name's Dave. They point at Dave and they're like, okay, dude, it's your turn. He goes, all right. And they, they let the hogs out. They, they move locations to this new spot and these dogs go off and you can hear them barking and then the barks kind of drift and they're running away. And he's like, we're kind of like a fast pace down this hall. And the guy's looking at like this tablet that shows the dog's location. And all of a sudden all the dots that show the dogs stop. And he goes, we need to move. So they all start running because once they stop, they have something pinned. And uh, he's like, we're running, we're running, we're running. And all of a sudden backed up against this like tractor with like a harvester on the back is this feral hog. And there's like six dogs got it cornered and it's like half chewed on. He goes, what do I do? And they said, kind of jump on it, cut its throat, you know, graphic, whatever. Um, you harvest it. Well, they did that. He's like, it's kind of there expiring. And he's like, we all look up. We're all out of breath. We've been running. You ran down kind of like half a cliff to get down into here. See, that's something that I've never done. I think I would like to give that a go, though, honestly. I wouldn't There's be a lot of people it. in the South that do it. There's a lot of people in Arkansas that do it. Um, but I know a lot of people in Texas do it. I've seen videos on YouTube. That stuff looks like a freaking rodeo, man. It's crazy. It does. So Dioji, there, I, I almost had a chance to get my dog in into a a, a dog hog hunting run. Um, I had some friends back home in Texas that that ran dogs, and I had a Catahoula half pit bull, half Catahoula dog, and um, he was just he was an amazing dog. And there was one time when I went out with one of my buddies, Dalen, and we had trapped some hogs. And Dioji, he was a calm, playful, just I mean, kind of fed off my energy dog. He was awesome, but I took him by that, that trapped hog. And there, I think there's two or three hogs in the trap and uh, one was a little piglet. And then there was a uh, sow. And then I think there was a little bit bigger, a bigger piglet. And, um, the OG comes walking by and his hair stood up and he starts like snarling. And I was like, I've never seen that side of my dog before. And uh, my buddy's like, Hey man, you want to run him with some dogs? And I was like, I just couldn't do it. He was my buddy. You know, he's, he's my companion you know, dog. He's hurt. my bird dog, but he was, you know, my companion dog. And I, I didn't want to see him get hurt, but uh, he probably would have been a really good hog dog. It was just in his blood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. And then, you know, him being pit bull and having that big blockhead and stuff would have helped him too. But I just, I couldn't do it to him. So well, I had a chance. I just, mm. because some of those dogs get messed up, man. I've seen like the dudes yeah, who are really hardcore into it. They have like a, uh, almost like a Kevlar vest for them. They yeah, have like this yep. thing that goes around the neck to help protect Cats them from the, the tusks yeah. and stuff. But yeah. dude, I mean, those yeah. hogs will, I mean, they've killed dogs before. It's, oh yeah. Especially oh, the yeah. big yeah. boars. Like they, they, yeah. they, yeah. they'll, Hey, they don't mess around. Yeah. They were, um, yeah, well, I, I've heard from from people that do run dogs is you don't think of it as a pet; you have to think of it as a tool. 
Yeah. Yep. Is it's it's you know they're they're not your pet dog. It's your tool to to harvest other animals. And yeah. Exactly. I'm too much of an empath to to allow that. Yeah. Same. Beautiful golden retrievers that are you know if they catch a fly in the air is graphic for them. My dog was a. Uh, he was a, he was a good dog. He he you know did his purpose as as being my companion. He was a good bird dog. In fact, one year he actually uh, I think we were in public lands over in Seguin, maybe I think I was going to say, and uh, we went dove hunting. And my dog actually got a bird before I did. And I was like, this is some bullshit. I was like, my dog doesn't have a rifle or opposable thumbs and he's harvesting a bird before I do. Um, but it was a bird that somebody else had shot. I think it was the same trip that we got peppered. Um, but somebody else had shot a bird and my dog would stay there right next to me and he would wait for me to take my shot and he would retrieve a bird. And he just took off behind me. I was like, what the hell's going on? I turn around and I look and I see this dove just flying out of the, out of the brush and DOG just jumped in the air and grabbed it and brought it back to me. And I was just like, my, my dog just got a bird before I did. I didn't even shoot the bird. Like, what the hell? So he, he was a good dog. But That's yeah, that was that was an interesting trip. We got peppered by, I don't even remember who it was, but I remember we were pissed off because they were shooting low birds like directly at us. Dude. It was ridiculous. Lands during dove season in Texas is a, uh, it can be quite the experience i almost got peppered i don't even know how many times dude it's it's kind of scary i was sitting in front of this yeah. tree and i just hear a shot and i hear the just like pellets just smacking the bark in the tree around. i was like oh shit and dude it happened twice I was like no nah, i'm done so like i walked out i was like waving my arms just nobody could shoot me i, walked, <laughs> I, I left man i won't get yep. shot for no dove forget that yeah I, I got peppered i got peppered turkey hunting up here on private land oh wow. really? and i was the only i had sole rights to it and oh. I wasn't too happy that morning. I was, uh, I bet it's kind of a, a hill. Well, it's kind of a dome. The field is kind of in the shape of a dome and the guy was on the other side. I was on this side. So no matter how you walked in, you would have never saw each other. Yeah. And he was trespassing on the other side, sit on a bucket. I come in this side. Well, I start calling. He responds to my call because he thinks I'm a turkey. I think he's a turkey. <laughs> Neither one of us are turkeys that are moving. <laughs> From my left, his right, and they're coming in. They they hit the top of that hill, and they're playing the, well, who's going to call us in better? Whose decoys look better game? And I don't know. It must be he was better than I was because they started going to him. And I'm like, huh. I'm thinking that one hen hasn't freaking moved all morning. She's just, she's just calling him right over. I'm like, I'm just bad at this. And I hear boom, boom. And next thing, like you guys said, is just slapping the tree around me and like leaves and stuff are getting, I'm like ducking and hiding and like, what the hell? And I'm like, you know, now I'm steaming running across this field. Like who the F is here? Like right. six o'clock in the morning, the sun just come up and I'm marching across the field the guy didn't even hit the turkey with the two shots that he shot. He missed both. He's like, well, they were like 20 yards. I mean, you can't hit a turkey at 20 yards, you friggin' right? idiot. <laughs> dude. dude, that's freaking terrifying, man. At least like the, for the dove thing, like I, I saw the dude, you know, you're there thinking you're by yourself and you almost get shot. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, the, the, what I thought was a turkey started shooting at me. They're <laughs> arming the forest here in New York. <laughs> yeah, they're evolving quick. These turkeys are pissed. <laughs> Second Amendment, I have the right to arm bears. <laughs> 
those turkeys uh, were at the same sale at Gander Mountain that you were. Yeah, You know, I was uh, I was watching uh, some YouTube earlier today. Like some, uh, there were these guys who were elk hunting and they were bugling and stuff. I got me. I got to think. I was like, man, I wonder how often, like in the mountains, they bugle and then they hear a response. It's another hunter bugling too, or like same for yeah, turkeys. Like, yeah. It's got to happen more than we think. Like, yeah, just, for sure. It's just crazy. I, I never thought about it. I was like, that would suck. Like you're hiking like five miles in, you're bugling, thinking you found an elk, and then you walk in there, it's another dude in orange. Crossing <laughs> your hunter. Yeah, that's that's a that's a dream hunt of mine. Is is go to like the Rockies for elk, whether Utah, Colorado, even like Wyoming, Nevada. If I I'd never Same. draw a tag for that, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, I put a, in. I put in for them all the time, and I mean, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> you got another fifty years. Yeah. <laughs> I've never put in for an out-of-state tag. I, I had a friend. He got drawn for a mule deer doe, I think, in Montana. He did that, and he fell in like he went on that one trip, and he fell in love with Montana. And moved there like a year or two after, and um, and so he's there now currently. Still, I don't know if he if he's gotten his elk yet. But uh, he, he has gotten, I think he got a, a buck not too long ago. And then, yeah, man, I I do want to start doing some some Western-style hunts, like public land, spawn stock, the whole nine. I, right. think, I think I really want to start with, like, a, a pronghorn and then maybe kind of work my way up, like, mule deer and then elk, because I don't know what I'm doing. And, uh, and the, the thought of, like, yeah, and the thought of, like, if somehow – everything comes together and I'm able to get an elk. How the hell am I going to get hundreds of pounds worth of meat? <laughs> <laughs> You're a pound animal. You got to get that down the hill. Dude. Right. It, yeah, man. It's, it's, it's like logistically, it just seems like a freaking nightmare. Like mm-hmm. I was, a, I was, I got drawn for a, it was, I think one of the first years that they were here in Texas, they were opening um, a wildlife management area up for hunting and they had an archery no guy hunt that you could apply for. And I got drawn for it and, uh, and I was going to do it, but then I started thinking about it. I was like, dude, I, I know guys a big ass animal. Like if I even managed to get lucky enough to get one, how am I going to do this? Cause no one else yeah. like I knew like at that point in time, really, at least like where I was like the hunt stuff. I was like, dude, this is going to be a freaking nightmare. And so I was like, oh, I think I'm going to sit this one out. <laughs> so I, right I didn't on. do it. I wish I would have just to get the experience, but uh, I was also in grad school working my master's at the time. So I just didn't have the time to like go and scout and, you know, all that other stuff. Right. So, right. Um, but I think next year I'm going to apply for that one. But yeah, dude, it's, I really, I need to start applying for those out of state hunts. Just I, got, I got stuck on a YouTube loop rabbit hole. And it was this guy doing a solo hunt in public land in Colorado for elk. Mm-hmm. And he hiked in on whatever mountain range and where he set up, he set up like a, well, it was like a, basically a bivy, um, in the woods. And he said it was like eight miles in from where he parked his truck. Oh my goodness. And that's where he set up. And then he was planning on hiking six one way tomorrow and then six back to his camp. Um, so he's hiking just, I'm going to follow this ridge line six miles. Once I hit six miles, I'm going to turn around and walk back by then it should be evening kind of plan. And he did that and he shot, he got to his six mile mark. It was this like third or fourth day. He got to his six mile mark and he was glassing and he saw this big, beautiful bull that was probably another like two miles away. 
on an opposite ridge. So he decided to chase it. And when he saw it, it was like 11 a.m. And he kind of he hustled down like the hill through the woods, you know, to grandmother's house. He's going and he crossed (laughs) over this creek and stream and he's going back up the other side. And finally, he's bow hunting. Finally, he he hears a bugle and he's calling back. He's got, you know, the cow um, screams and whatnot. And uh, finally, the the kind of the issue he has is the sun is setting and his camp is like now 10 miles behind him kind of thing. And the sun, the sun is coming down. Like he's got like a headlamp and like basically a couple ration type foods and like an emergency sleeping stuff in his pack. And the next thing you see is his, his like, I don't know if it's a GoPro or whatever tacticam on his bow. That was your view. And he's looking around this bush and he's at full draw and you can hear him like, and it just steps out thunk he hits it and i'm like i understand the opportunity you were given but you just right. set yourself up for the longest night of your life no so lie. he he tracks it and it ran obviously complete opposite way of his camp and it died probably another 200 yards down and he's looking and he's like it's about it's six six thirty in the evening he's like i only got a max of like three hours of sunlight left and i got a 10 mile hike back to my camp and i'm in grizzly bear territory with a dead animal in my hands like this is adding up for a perfect night out (laughs) (laughs) so uh, he keeps it and he quarters it and uh there was a stream and, and his approach was actually really smart. There was a stream that was probably 200 yards away and he had game bags with him to, to haul it out. And there are these like breathable fabric. You can mm-hmm. put meat in them, tie it. And he was setting them in the water of the stream to reduce the scent. So the grizzlies couldn't find it. Yeah. So he ordered it, would run it to the stream. And then he had his pack. He'd pack out one piece at a time and he did that for like the next day and a half. And I'm like, dude. And then finally he he got done. He got back to his camp. And he was like storing them in this like, I, I don't even know how to. It was like a bag that he was hanging out of a tree. And he would just do it all night long. And it was like half of the next day. And he goes, I need to get this on ice before my meat goes bad. So then he's like, how am I going to get it six miles from here back to my truck where my Yeti cooler is? <laughs> so uh, he did, and, and he only lost some of it. Um, he, he was very ethical of the whole thing, and he's like really trying to figure out how can I hike this like 10 miles plus six, like 16 miles back to my truck without it going bad. There's no real good way to do that by yourself. Yeah. So he lost maybe 60 pounds of the meat just from spoilage. But he's like, that was an incredible experience that I never want to do again. <laughs> right. Dude. Yeah. yeah like, that's we, crazy. I don't think, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like this, the thought of an elk hunt back country, like sounds freaking awesome. Yeah. But then I don't know how many people actually like really think about the work that comes after. If you get lucky, right. Dude, right. That's a freaking night, especially like in grizzly bear country. Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. dude. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you ever heard about a. Uh, I'm sure you have, but um, the meat eater, meat eater crew. Oh yeah, yep, yep, yeah. Yep. So there, was, there was this. It was called the uh, the meat tree. I think it was like a two part series. Uh, it was a podcast. Really, really interesting. So they went to a fog neck island, and uh, it's one of these like island chains off the coast of Alaska. 
Mm-hmm. And the Fognac has some of the world's largest elk. Um, they were like mm-hmm. brought there for something, and they were there was just like no. Um, it was just like really good habitat apparently. And they just got huge. So like thousand plus pound bodied elk. And then of course the bears are also equally as large because now they have a larger food source and they're, yeah. And so they're, I mean, and they're crawling, there's bears everywhere there. So then and a fog neck from the way this, they described it like this, like this really thick, nasty place, you know, and, and, uh, they were hunting there, finally got an elk, they shot it. And kind of, and they fell like in this really like bad spot. And so they just, I think it was getting late or something too. So they just quartered it. They, they put them in those meat bags you're talking about, hoisted it up a tree. They were going to go back to camp and just come back there and, and grab it. So they went there uh, like a day or two later. I forgot how long they went there. They were on the way to the meat tree and they started seeing some scat from, from, from grizzlies. They're like, huh. And all of these hunters, like they're all like, you know, they're well versed. Like they're, they're seasoned hunters. They know what's up. Right. So they get to this meat tree or the quote unquote meat tree where they have it, the meat hoisted up. And so they're there, they're trying to get it down and all this stuff. And then they kind of put their packs down and their bear spray and guns down and stuff. And so they're just there hanging out. And, uh, next thing you know, they hear like brush rustling and this grizzly bear broke through their little group of, of, of friends. And they're like, I mean, everyone's scattered like from one another, everyone's away from their guns and, and stuff. And, uh, they're like, Holy shit. And so like all these, they just kind of like dive out of the way. And this one dude, I think it was Ryan, maybe I don't remember, but one of the guys had some trick, some hiking poles and just like out of reaction, just whacked the bear in the face with it as he passed by. <laughs> and, uh, okay. I guess, yeah. And I, and I guess the bear was like, in shock, instead of like finding one person, he found a group of people and maybe he was just like, Oh shit, kind of got scared, but he went down. Yeah. So he like went, he like, he ran away and then, uh, and everyone like got up and they're checking themselves like everybody good. And one of their friends was like, they, they, they didn't see him. They didn't hear from him. And they, and some, one of the guys saw their friend, like, go with the bear and they didn't know what happened. So they ran in the direction of the bear and they found the dude laying there. And so if I remember, if I recall from the story, the friend like tried to run and he tripped and as he tripped, the bear passed by. So he like fell onto the bear and like got oh a little my. bit and like got a little bit of a ride and eventually fell off like 30 <laughs> feet from everybody else. Wow. <laughs> but he was okay. Everyone was okay. And they were like, Holy yeah. shit. And so they just went and grabbed the, grabbed me and they took off. But it was like, dude, like when you, on top of like having to take care of an animal, but taking care of an animal where, there's another animal that can kill you. It just adds a whole yeah, other, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. a whole other layer to the to the to the to the event. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, dude, I remember listening to that, and it was just freaking crazy. Dude, you should it's listen not- to the podcast. It's a like I think it's a two part thing. It's really interesting, man. Um, I think it's, I think the episodes are called the Meat Tree. It's it's huh. pretty- yeah. I'm I'm definitely gonna listen. To that. that sounds like a great story. And I'll, I'll, I'll find it and I'll put the link in the description too. So that way, if you can't find it by then, I'll, I'll have it on yeah. there. So when the episode yeah, comes out, cool. yeah. yeah, I may have fudged some of the details. It's been a while, but that's more or less like the gist. It's freaking, right. it's that's, freaking crazy. That's, that's, that's scary. Like I'm not afraid of much in the woods, um, but maybe a grizzly and maybe like a cougar. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Things that'll tell you apart for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Jose, do you remember John Martin that we went to school with? Yes. Yeah. 
I wonder what kind of stories he has because he's such an average hunter. He's always doing elk hunts and mm-hmm. big game hunts in different states and stuff. So I wonder if he's experienced anything like that. Oh, I'm I'm sure. Well, if not nothing like that, I mean, he has a wealth of experience and stories. I would imagine, right? Like, yeah, we don't I'm, we don't have anything super like I would say like aggressive and scary here. Got black um, bears, right? Yeah, we have black bears, but they don't they don't usually mess with anything. Like there's there's a large camping area where a lot of people go to camp. It's called Old Forge, uh-huh. and you get like your basic weekender campers that. You know, don't they're not they're not roughing it really. They're maybe sleeping in a tent, sure, but um, it's pretty populated, and nobody knows you know the proper way to like store food overnight. So I think like the really the only injuries bear related that I've heard of are like people trying to take the food from the bear and getting attacked, or people mm-hmm. trying to mess with a cub and getting attacked. People probably not a bear, probably. More or less, it's, it's <laughs> you putting yourself in the rift, but yeah. like you've you'll see them in the woods and they'll like walk by and like they're usually pretty docile for the most part. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily try to piss one off, but were the bears right. on cocaine? Yeah, no, they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, not, not cocaine. Um, maybe meth. We have a lot of meth up here. Definitely not <laughs> Dude, have y'all seen that video of the freaking people that are eating the sandwich with the bear at the picnic table? Yes, dude. Yeah. yeah. I was like, what the dude? I mean, of course, we have bears here in Arkansas, but we don't see them very often. And I just, I guess it's so out of the norm for me that I would still be like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Dude, I, I saw one recently. There was like, I guess it looked like they were in a backyard setting. I, I don't know if they were grilling or what, but there's this big black bear. I mean, he was chunky, dude. And he's just there chilling. And they're like trying to like escort him out of the yard. And so this dude just walks up to the gate, kind of opens it. And the bear just kind of like looks at him. And he took a swipe at him. And the dude had like the nail marks on his side. But I don't think it, it drew blood. Um, and, wow. the bear just walked, and the bear just walked out, walked across the street, started checking out some garbage cans. And I was like, man, these people are like some. Well, not th- so there are some people who are just a little too comfortable around wildlife. Right. Yeah. Right. I got, it was that, that same campground. I had some friends and, and I don't want to, I don't want to say their name, but they had a Snapchat. They or I got a Snapchat from them of their neighbor. So they were in like a camper and then it was like a picnic table and then a little area for like a, like a campfire and then another camper and so on and so forth down. Well, they had heard some people talking about a bear. So they kind of went to like snoop around and investigate while well, there was this, kind of the party camper and uh you could tell everyone there was pretty heavily intoxicated and mm. there was a black bear up on a picnic table and it was one of those like igloo coolers with like the top that slides over and stuff uh-huh. and, it, and it was trying to figure out how to get into that because obviously there's something in there that it wanted and and it was like smacking it and moving it and trying to figure out how to open it and it was about ready to like smash it and it's chewing on it well it's standing on top of a picnic table this black bear, it's not very big. It's maybe 200 pounds. It's not a very big black bear. And this drunk bastard comes out of his camera. He's like, what the hell are you doing? And he's yelling at it as if it's like a freaking 12-year-old kid. And he's like, he's standing like as close as we are to our computer monitors, just yelling at it. And finally, with just the palm of his hand, just slaps this thing on the ass. And it's like, get out of here. And the bear looks at him and like a coward dog just runs into the woods. With his cooler, the cooler is mine. It turns back and looks at him. It's like, 
screw you, dude. I'm taking your cooler with me. And runs away. And then it's just all of my half-drunk friends laughing at him. I'm like, wow, that was... No, thank That's you. Ballsy. <laughs> that is ballsy. <laughs> he just slapped it on the butt while it was up on top of that. And the thing just like looks at him and I'm like, all right. And it just runs into the woods. I'm like, okay, well, good for you, man. You did that. That's a thing right? you've done now. That's <laughs> insane. Yeah. Dude has some stones. There ain't no way in hell I'll be physically touching a bear. I'd be inside the camper with my phone being like recording it like yeah let's see if we can get into it <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't I didn't really like that cooler anyways <laughs> <laughs> even if I did at that point I don't anymore <laughs> take it <laughs> well got an excuse to get a new Yeti yeah right, right. exactly they yeah they're bear proof aren't they the, that's what they say I don't know they say they are I don't I'd be interested to give them to one of them like grizzlies or brown bears in like the canadian rockies <laughs> you see how they do that with some nice right. raw salmon hiding inside yeah for real yeah i don't think they'd fare very well but uh, i mean uh, i want i want to know how they do their field studies <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah did you drop this in a zoo well, he said <laughs> right they just, right they just, said, they just said bear proof they didn't say what kind of bear or how big it could be like little black bear cubs or something yeah right? yeah here's a, here's a 20 pound black bear cub i wonder if part of it is that like gasket seal they have if they just can't smell it so they're not tempted to go uh, into it. That could be it too. That probably has a lot to do with it. If that's probably their, their thing, but you know, you, you grease that up with some, you know, fresh elk fat on the outside of that. Oh, yeah. some, some good smell and stuff. I bet that, that Yeti's probably not bear proof. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But knows, maybe, it. maybe it is. Maybe, maybe they're onto something hard to know. <laughs> I want to see some hard, hard telling, not knowing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I see that we uh, are two hours in, so Yikes. we're kind of kind of getting uh, getting up there in terms of time. Um, I I didn't even realize that we were two hours in. Yeah, it's the first time I looked at the time. Um, but due to our hosting site, we only have a certain amount uh, we can talk about. So um, it's been great having you on. I really appreciate you hopping on kind of last minute, and uh, it's been a great conversation. And you, you know, I'm sure I can speak for both of us that you're welcome back anytime. So all right. Uh, is there anything that. else you want to talk about before we go ahead and start trying to end it? A question for you, Fred. I don't think you told us. If you did, I may have missed it. What was the name of your doe estrus company? So it is Daybreak Deer Lures. Daybreak Deer Lures. I'm about to look. And it's if I do, I do a do I do a shameless plug? Absolutely, man. (laughs) Daybreaksense.com would be my website. So you have a website for both corny boards and daybreak. Yep, cornyboards.net because someone owns the freaking dot com domain. (laughs) (laughs) Why I don't know, but cornyboards.net and daybreaksense.com. Daybreaksense cornyboards.net. Awesome man. We'll definitely put your uh, both your links in the description, and you know y'all go check them out. I appreciate you coming on and um, you know, it's been a great episode and as soon as it releases, I'll let you know. And uh, yeah, you know, you're more than welcome to share it however you please. And all right. Uh, all right. You know, yeah, we appreciate you, you coming for, on. Yeah, man. It was, a, it was a great chat. Yeah. And anytime you're in Texas or Arkansas, shoot us a message and maybe we can do some fishing or something. I would, I would for love, sure. I would love to go South and just do something that's not North. <laughs> See, I'm the opposite. I want to go North to <laughs> do something that's yeah, not I, South. I mean, yeah. Man, yeah, like what I would do for a freaking like small, like greater than 12 inches. Like, right. Yeah. 
if you guys are ever up this way, I mean, you, you know you got a place to stay, and I can show you around the water and show you around the woods if you want to go hunting. Hell yeah, know, we might have to make that happen. No, I know the state pretty well. I know I know the waters. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not an elite series pro, but I've caught fish. That's <laughs> <laughs> like pretty good for you, so both man. of us. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I can I can probably put you on fish. I can probably put you on fish. Well, we but, might um, have to make that happen sometime soon. For all sure. right, all right, I'm game for that. But I Alrighty. I'm more than more than grateful for you guys having me on. Thank you for letting me talk your ear off for two hours here. <laughs> hey, we've enjoyed it. It's been great. Yeah, that was a good time. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, guys. That was fun. Not a problem. And for the listeners, thank y'all for listening to the end. And uh, y'all have a good one, and we'll catch y'all next time. This has been Wildlife Outdoors. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook at Wildlife Outdoors and on Instagram at wild.life.outdoors. Let's go live life on the wild side.